Hello and welcome to the We Are Guernsey podcast, where we bring you interviews with leaders from the global finance industry, as well as news and developments from Guernsey's financial services sector. My name is Brandon Ashplant and I am Senior Strategy and Technical Executive here at Guernsey Finance. For those not familiar with Guernsey, the island is a leading global finance centre. The success of the industry here is underpinned by economic substance, political stability and asset security, and we are committed to to the cause of sustainable finance. To find out more about Guernsey's success in sustainable finance, tune into our sister podcast, the Guernsey Green Finance Podcast. Today, I am delighted to be joined by John Pepin, Chief Executive of Philanthropy Impact UK, and Justin Sykes, Founder and Managing Director of Innovest Advisory. John has 20 years experience as a social entrepreneurial consultant, working for over 300 charities internationally. He spent 15 years as a chief executive of various Canadian charities prior to taking up his current position. Justin is an impact investment specialist with over 20 years experience, focusing on deploying private capital to vulnerable populations to create better opportunities. Today, we will be exploring the drive behind professional advisors trying to better understand their clients' respective values and how this informs investment decision-making. So without further ado, welcome both. Thank you. Thank you very much. So starting with yourself, John, um, please could you just kind of outline sort of your career to date? Well, you sort of did it with the 15 years. My specialty in Canada was going into charities that were facing difficulties and helping to grow them to uh, and to uh, develop new ways of delivering service. Uh, so I was amongst the first in the 1980s to develop social enterprises and commercial opportunities uh, 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 as part of a charity's service and even franchised one. So it's quite deviant uh, kind of activity at that time. Um, I set up a consultancy to, <coughs> excuse me, to help um, uh, third sector organizations uh, to become much more entrepreneurial and to grow and to be strategically strong in that way and looked at different ways of diversifying revenue. And then uh, I've ended up with that philanthropy impact, um, been here for eight years. And our uh, we work with professional advisors to high net worth and high net, uh, high, ultra high net worth individuals. So private client advisors, so uh, tax lawyers, uh, private banks, uh, wealth managers, etc. And um, what we're trying to do is work with them to help them to um, uh, respond to the changing needs of private clients um, and to how to support those clients in a number of different ways across the spectrum of capital. So it could be that some of them want uh, support on their philanthropic journey. Many of them want to live their values through their investments. And so we help advisors respond to those changing needs. Great. And uh, just to follow up with, with Justin, how did you end up founding Invest Advisory? Um, thanks, Brendan. Yeah, so my, my background for over 20 years has been working at the, the nexus of, of private asset owners and their wish to deploy capital for, uh, for, for purpose objectives, primarily around social justice, uh, job creation and economic development. Um, and in my, my last role uh, before starting Invest was working for a large uh, foundation in the Middle East. And that foundation was set up to create jobs for young people 
in the aftermath of the the Arab Spring revolutions. And uh, initially that foundation uh, was operating on the basis of of a a venture philanthropy model. So so giving philanthropic funding away to organizations with the objective of of, of those those, uh, donations creating lots of jobs. And pretty much in every conversation from Casablanca through to Baghdad, uh, the intermediaries in the uh, in the countries were saying, "We don't need grants. We actually need debt, or we actually need equity. And by giving us that type of repairable capital, we can invest it in businesses, or we can create intermediary organisations such as SME banks and microfinance institutions that then themselves on lend and invest into into entrepreneurs." And that's that's how you create jobs. So, so you know, we listened to that feedback and ended up uh, creating a, a fifty million dollar impact investment fund with a basically two two purposes. First and foremost, it looked at deals across uh, twelve countries uh, in the Arab world and said. Will these investments create jobs at scale for young people? And that was the first sort of tick box. And if it didn't, they weren't they weren't even considered any further. And then secondly, uh, we we looked at those deals and said, will we be able to to invest in these projects and at least achieve capital preservation, i.e., we get our money back uh, protected against uh, inflation? And if it ticked that second box. Uh, then basically an investment would go ahead, um, and I think that 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 experience of of building a a, a large scale fund uh, that could um, you know invest protect its capital and achieve significant uh, social impact, and we created around two hundred thousand jobs through that that facility. Um, that experience really sort of led me to think that actually. This this whole space of of applying what were sort of traditionally charitable and philanthropic objectives, um, but now through a lens of of repairable capital and sort of market based instruments, um, is a huge market that is is nascent and needs support um, to develop. Uh, and really, that was the 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 origin of Invest, and we've been building out um, our, our our services um, over the last uh, six six years six, seven years now. Fascinating. Brilliant. Well, um, let's jump straight into things. Um, John, what is driving professional advisors to get involved in conversations with clients about their values? I think there's a number of issues that are going on. Uh, one is the shifting values of millennials tend to have wealth. They want a new kind of wealth management. And what we're finding in our discussions with very wealthy young people, uh, high net worth, ultra high net worth young people, that uh, if their advisors are not supporting them um, you know, in their investments or on their donor journey, um, not getting involved in discussions about their values and helping to live their values or firing their advisors. So there's a real drive taking place. And now we're starting to also see that uh, lead into uh, the older generation, so the boomers. The second is uh, giving examples. So 73% of younger generation in the UK say they want more opportunities to tackle uh, social issues through impact investing. So there's a real shift to impact investing. Um, research with Morgan Stanley shows that 84% of millennials cite investing with a focus on ESG impact as their central goal. And again, that's it, their whole values alignment, um, where, for example, Tonic says uh, values alignment is where most sustainability-minded investors start. So it's coming from the clients. But on the other side, 
um, uh, there are issues coming. Uh, but uh, one more thing about clients is that uh, we did uh, internet interviews of 503 wealthy people a few years ago. And we asked them, um, are you, one of the questions was, are you receiving uh, support from your uh, advisors on your philanthropic work? And the answer was so-so. You can tell how scientific I am, so-so. Um, then we asked them, could they rate across all the different types of advisory categories, so from legal, private banks, et cetera, et cetera. The average rating was 5.9 out of 10. That's which is absolutely wretched, really terrible. Um, and um, uh, and then the third question was, did they want more? And the answer was definitely yes. So from a supporting a donor journey, there's a definite um, uh, desire on the part of wealthy people. And this just wasn't younger generation. This was all generations. On the other side, from the uh, wealth management perspective, there's a whole issue now around uh, consumer duty uh, that FCA has brought in and also MIFID II that the EU's brought in around sustainability. And so there's a compliance issue. So not only is it being driven by clients, but also uh, by compliance. And so if you're going to do uh, these compliance things, you have to be able to have conversations about your clients, with your clients about their values, their motivations, their ambitions, and um, uh, within that, set priorities and then come up with a portfolio of products to invest in that helps them to live their values. If you can't have those conversations, then uh, there's real issues. So we talk about suitability conversations beyond the normal uh, discussions around suitability. So compliance plus clients, uh, it's a lot of uh, lot of drive to bring these changes. Mm. And sort of building on that point then, Justin, what are the kind of market trends most kind of prominently impacting the role of the advisor, whether it be in supporting clients on their donor journey or addressing suitability issues related to their, their clients' values? What are the market trends most prominently impacting uh, yeah, the role of the advisor? Yeah, uh, sort of just picking up on, on John's point here, um, you know, I think that the, the challenge has been and still remains um, this this issue of translating um, client aspirations into um, investments. When we talk particularly about impact investments, investments that that meet those aspirations. And I think when when John talks about the sort of the performance, sort of the so-so performance, um, you know, it's because I think there's a sense of, of, of clients somewhat being underwhelmed between a gap between their aspirations and 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 what is being offered to them by uh, advisors in terms of investment opportunities. And quite often, those investment opportunities are quite they still remain to be quite generic, quite bland. Uh, for example, you know, perhaps a, a client's wishes to be uh, invested into, you know, Im impact investment funds might be interpreted as a uh, publicly listed ESG fund investing in large multinational corporates. Um, and that's, you know, a fundamental mismatch between um, uh, the aspirations of the client and the solutions that have been offered to those clients. Um, so I think that's that's a key problem, which is, is only really solved by better education of professional advisors, uh, better networks 
where professional advisors are able to, to, to be connected to um, more bespoke and more impactful investment opportunities that then can serve to, to speak more closely to the needs of, of underlying clients. Um, and I think that's really where we as, as Innovest come in because our primary role as a business is to work with um, impact investment fund managers. Um, so we we currently advise uh, 11 uh, impact fund managers with an AUM of, uh, of $1.7 billion. Um, and we call it impact AUM because that money is deployed into, into deeply impactful investments. Um, so that, that th- those kind of relationships basically mean that we are working with um, very um, authentic and genuine fund managers that are investing assets into, into uh, underlying companies that are offering, uh, that, that are delivering a clear impact story to the market. And it's those type of managers with that intentionality, uh, with clear values embedded into the management team of those fund managers that the um, the clients that John talks about are, are desperate to, to, to connect with um, and that we can start to offer that connective tissue between supply and demand. Um, and as a result of that, we are increasingly having conversations with um, you know, substantial private client, uh, private wealth uh, or private private asset owner structures, such as specialized foundations and charitable trusts and family offices that have set up significant mandates for impact investing and are looking to deploy that capital into these really, um, you know, the managers that meet those 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 ideals. Uh, and John, what do you think about, about that? Um, I agree with what Justin is saying. I think there's some real issues. You mentioned that there's a need for better education. Uh, we run specialized training programs for advisors, um, and uh, we our specialty isn't in the um, investment product. Our specialty is teaching advisors how to have those conversations with their clients about their values and their motivations, ambitions, etc. And um, it's it's slowly changing where their uh, comfort levels seem to be growing a bit, but there's still a long way to go. The other thing is is to keep in mind is those conversations are complex so they're not always easy and you have to go into them well prepared Um, and so if you're having those conversations uh, you have to manage that conversation in a way that uh, does a lot of what Justin is saying but also keeping in mind what your uh, portfolio products are and how they um, mesh together and stuff and and then following up on Justin saying is having the products there, uh, which is really important. So better education is is something that we focus in on at Philanthropy Impact. Don't let the word philanthropy impact fool you. Uh, We work across the spectrum of capital. So we work from philanthropy to social investment to impact investing. And the other thing that's really important in all this, I think, is language. Their words are used in so many different ways by people, whether it's for clients or whether it's uh, uh, the um, investment managers, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, there's, I think there's still a lot of confusion about some of the difference between ESG and impact investing and some of the complications, especially around impact. How do you measure impact? It's not going to be an overnight measurement uh, and stuff. So I think there's some real issues around all that. And, and sort of shifting gears, um, but sticking there on that point, John, 
we often hear a lot about the next generation, um, the big transfer of wealth that's that's happening or due to happen shortly. Is the new generation of philanthropists that are coming through, are they creating a need for a new kind of wealth management? Uh, definitely. No doubt about that at all. We have we work with groups of, of millennials, Gen Z, um, and women of wealth around this whole thing, and uh, it um, it um, it's a, a, a really important for them to do impact investing, but also for many of them to do philanthropy or to do the two uh, together. Can I read you a quote? Of course. Yeah. Okay. This is from a, a young woman, millennial. Um, so as a next gen woman of wealth seeking to engage in values aligned impact investing and philanthropy, the role of my advisors is absolutely essential to enable me to achieve my economic and social goals, etc. Just keeps going on like that. My aim now is to use my personal wealth as a force for good and to have systemic change in key areas or sectors that are really important to me. So this person focused a lot on the environment, which is a theme that you guys have uh, uh, as well. Um, so uh, and that, and that reflects a lot of the what a lot of these young people are are doing. And if we keep in mind women of wealth, right now in the U.S. they control fifty percent of liquid assets, and it's estimated within two generations it'll be seventy percent. Their whole approach to their advisors is really quite different from the more traditional approach to advisors. So they have a strong um, uh, interest in in uh, social entrepreneurial stuff, and a lot of what Justin was talking about their personal goals and values are really important they're most likely to switch advisors if the advisors do not help them uh, with their whole approach so the stuff that uh, Justin's doing is really important work around that and the work we're doing around training advisors and making them more aware about this I think is really key and essential the other thing is transparency um, and um, clarity so as a professional advisor, it's really important for me to be able to articulate what my values are and what my company's value are, and not just to read the values that are written down, but to actually uh, uh, live those and, uh, and again, reinforcing a lot of work that Guernsey Finance is doing around that whole thing. Um, it's really quite impressive uh, what's happening. Um, the um, so so and um, the Gen Z uh, is is those things as well, um, uh, but it's also uh, uh, the use of technology, and a big part of this is not about um, um, uh, using technology to communicate. A big part of it is relationship building. Mm -hmm. So technology is important, but I noticed that there's a bank. I just saw a headline. I've had the detail that's starting to use metaverse as mm -hmm. part of their way of communicating. Um, and I think in a few years, people will be using quantum computers as, as that. So there's some real big changes. And for Gen Z, I mean, for me, slide rules were just a normal thing, right? Mm -hmm. You probably don't even know what a slide rule is. Um, but um, for Gen Z, it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, the technology and metaverse and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's really quite different. Advisors really have to catch up on that and understand that mm. and change is taking place. Interesting. Fascinating. Um, Justin, John sort of mentioned in his previous point there a bit about measurement. Um, and obviously it's crucial to, in many ways, how how things play out and how, and how um, impact is um, achieved in many ways and benchmarks. But 
how important do you think it is to achieving and measuring the impact sort of process? You know, that, that process might include impact strategy development, measurement and management, of course, but also due diligence and, and eventually at the end, impact verification. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, impact really is is kind of, impact measurement is kind of critical to, to all of this. Um, if we think about, the the why this is why why there is this aspiration um to to deploy uh funding whether it be purely philanthropic or or repayable um on behalf of a of a of a, a family or a principal it's because they want to see change in the world um they they have a vision and they they, they want to to uh, they have values and they want to basically see a positive impact on people or planet that's the driver of all of this and you know there may be factors around what's influencing them to do that in terms of kind of family values or legacy um, or support for the community in which they came from multiple multiple sort of background reasons but ultimately that money is being deployed to achieve a certain set of objectives. Uh, and as a result, um, if you are unable to actually measure um, meaningfully uh, on an evidence, you know, with a on an evidence basis, whether that, that intended change uh, has happened, then all of this is, is, is pretty pointless. So I think, um, yeah, for, for us in our work, um, measuring impact is 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 critical to everything, um, and and that process of measuring impact is not just a uh, you know gathering data at a point in time and and assuming that that data is going to tell you you everything everything you need to know. It is about a a process that's put in place um, that that upfront that basically is set out in an impact strategy that really sets out what you're trying to achieve. Um, so it, uh, for example, for, a, you know, what, uh, an example fund managers that we're working with, it would be at the start of, of building a new fund proposition, an impact fund proposition. It's sitting down with the team and it's saying, well, you know, what change do you want to see in the world and, and how, how will investment achieve that change, whether it be poverty alleviation or financial inclusion or safe and affordable housing or better quality education. Um, and then what is the strategy that we need to develop to, 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 to see that, um, that, that, that change and setting out that strategy in terms of, you know, we have a, a thesis of what impact will be as a result of deploying this capital. We then have a theory of change, which is a fancy, fancy word to basically, or fancy phrase to basically say, what does the expected future positive impact look like? You know, setting out a vision for success. Um, and then um, an impact, uh, we then support the development of an impact measurement framework, which is, is really the sort of the operational system by which you um, determine uh, KPIs um, and 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 metrics, um, and those metrics are, are very specific um, uh, uh, attributes that you then say, well, it could be you know liters of water or CO two, uh, um, tons of CO two, or it could be um, it could be around number of loans provided or uh, number of houses built. Um, so that data, those those data points then become the, 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 the practical system 
by which you then are able to track and measure impact over time. Um, then, you know, once you've got those data points, you then need to work with the, the underlying grantees or underlying investees, if it's a, an impact uh, vehicle, to actually work with them to, to gather this data um, and to gather that data meaningfully, accurately, regularly. Um, and then when that data comes in, and it may be a mixture of qualitative and quantitative data, is, is to then um, to then analyze that data and to determine whether that, that data indeed is, is, is saying what you wanted it to say, what you claimed um, to the market or what you claimed to the funder is indeed actually occurring. So I think you know, impact, um, in, impact measurement is critical and impact measurement is just not you know, a point in time, but it's, a, it's an entire system that needs to be put in place to be sufficiently robust to generate the evidence, which then you can use to really go back to a funder or a donor and say, here, look, that, that change that I claimed that we were going to make is actually happening. Or indeed, um, you know, because life gets in the way sometimes, um, that actually there's a whole bunch of really interesting things that have happened that we never knew uh, were going to happen, but we've got this data. Um, oh, now we can use that data to inform how we iterate or enhance our delivery model to make it more impactful. Um, so yeah, that's that, that's the kind of sense of of of, of the importance of impact. Mm. And John, what are the differences across the spectrum of kind of capital issues with regards to ESG screened and ESG managed investments and impact related investments? How many hours do we have? <laughs> um, um, I'm going to keep this really simple. Sure. Um, yeah, stuff in the training we go through it in great detail because it's really important to understand this, and, and I think it reinforces what Justin's been saying. When you have everything from traditional, where you're trying just to maximize your financial return, to avoiding harm, um, so exclusion of certain investments, and then uh, ESG, which reflects uh, uh, ESG uh, related risks. And impact generating, which is much more focused on actually bringing change. And um, uh, so there's a whole, whole range of different approaches uh, along that spectrum. I, there's a, we use uh, in the training, and we also make available to advisors as part of a tool that they can use uh, 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 the spectrum of capital investment return continuum. And I, 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 do I, can I just give an example? Of course, something? yeah. These are sort of simple questions, but you can adopt uh, the spectrum in a way in your conversation. So this is this is very simplest, simplistic a review of this, but it's much more complex. So uh, if it's uh, around climate, for example, which is a theme this week, um, uh, so for philanthropy or social investment, I might state climate change is an urgent priority for me. I don't need my capital to be returned to me if I create enough impact. So that gives a sense of some of the conversations that I have. If it's around impacting, uh, impact investing, I want to contribute addressing uh, climate change, even if it means taking more risk or a reduced return. Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily have reduced return, but that's always a possibility. If it's around uh, responsible investment, I want to behave responsibility, responsible, and if it's around traditional, I'm aware of the potential negative impact on the environment, but do not choose to mitigate it through my investments. So you can get into conversations with your clients that sort of Run a bit mm -hmm. parallel to that, but it's more complex than that. I was really simplifying it for to make the point here that you can use the spectrum of capital 
as a way of supporting those conversations. Mm. But there's other tools that we use, uh, for example, one that's been designed by Oxford Risk uh, uh, around fall behavioral approaches and stuff. So um, there's some really interesting behavioral tools out there to help uh, clients set their priorities um, within sometimes the context of SDGs, because of course SDGs are being used more and more by people to contextualize their philanthropy and, and to a certain extent they're investing. Mm. And Justin, sort of given that kind of um, analysis there by John of the kind of spectrum um, there is all the way from kind of traditional modes of philanthropy all the way to the um, impact investment, but also just kind of non-impact investment, I suppose, on, on, the, on the further side of that spectrum. Um, what are the actual different methods of measuring impacts? Yeah, I think, you know, just on that sort of last point with, with what John responded to, maybe just a, a little bit more from my side on that, and then, then I'll, I'll give you some, some examples. But I think, you know, it's, it's frustrating how this, um, uh, you know, lack of understanding of the market continues in terms of co-flating ESG and, and impact. Um, because I think from, from where we sit and the work we do, it, it's, it's crystal clear that, you know, ESG is risk management. It's basically factoring in, environmental, social, and governance risks into how they affect your business operations. Um, whereas impact investing is, is intent, investing intentionally into companies whose core business model is addressing a societal challenge, whether that be climate, the broader environment, or, or social impact. And I think for us, that's, that, that's very clear, but the market still continues, unfortunately, to co-flate, which is not helpful. Um, but yeah, coming back to impact uh, measurement, I think this is a really important point that that it really matters what you measure. Um, and, and, you know, I think historically, whether it be philanthropic funding um, or, or, or impact investment, um, the easiest thing to do is, is basically measure what we call uh, outputs. Um, and they're basically the sort of the immediate effects of any organization's activities. And they're, they're typically kind of a numerical output. So it could be um, number of um, training courses given, number of houses built, uh, number of loans made. Um, and, you know, they look great. Uh, because they 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 stand off on a page and you can you can you can rapidly rack up lots of numbers um, and and those numbers kind of look visually attractive, but what we always say is is telling you the what but not the so what um, and I give you a really good example um, you know financial inclusion is a is a, is is probably the largest impact investment thematic globally you know there's sort of billions invested into financial inclusion around the world. And a, a lot of the claims around financial inclusion are that you're basically uh, banking the unbanked. Um, and as a result of that, you're contributing to um, enhancing the well-being of those, those populations that didn't have financial access previously um, and contributing to poverty alleviation and, and, and better incomes and increased uh, family well-being. That's, you know, that's great. Uh, it's a very bold statement. Um, and if you then drill into that from an impact perspective, impact measurement perspective, you can get a lot of output data. So you could get all of this great information around, okay, how many clients have you provided loans or savings or insurance to this year? What was the average loan size you provided? You can probably generate a bit of data if you really, um, if you really push around, you know, what was the average job 
created by that small business you financed or, or a farmer you financed? What was the average increase in income uh, or business revenue of, of as a result of providing them with financial services? But that all of those numbers don't actually get to the heart of the question of did access to financial services uh, have a positive impact on the lives of those individuals and contribute to poverty alleviation, et cetera, et cetera. And the only way that you're actually going to get that level of, of, of detail is to go beyond outputs into what we call outcomes, uh, outcome measurement, um, which is basically the medium term changes that are achieved as a result of those those loans or those homes built or training provided. Um, and then ultimately impact measurement, um, which is basically the long-term changes that come about as a result of the accumulation of both outputs and outcomes. Um, and what I mean by that is saying, let's take that, that, that smallholder farmer who was provided with a loan and increased uh, his or her uh, revenue, um, let's say by 50% over a year. What did that smallholder farmer to do? Did he basically go down the, the, the pub and spend it on beer? Um, or did he actually take that 50% back to um, his home or her home and, and then spend that on increased uh, household consumption uh, for positive activities? So imagine buying a malarial bed net um, or paying for school fees where previously they hadn't been able to pay for school fees or paying for grandmother's medicine or buying a air conditioner um, or uh, a solar home system so they could um, uh, read or work at night rather, rather than using a, a paraffin lamp, which is you know limited light and, and, and very unhealthy in terms of indoor air pollution. And it's only when you start to get to that level of granularity, that disaggregated data, that, quali that qualitative data rather than just quantitative data, that you're actually able to generate evidence that then can go right back up to the start of your whole process that you set out in your impact strategy about what your theory of change was, that you're only ever going to be able to prove to your funders that you really, that the change you wanted to see and the change that you uh, uh, proposed to the funder has actually occurred. Um, so yeah, I think just giving that sense of output, outcome and impact measurement, and really, if you're going to produce clear evidence-based data that, that your intervention has worked, you can't do that on purely output data. You've got to get to this outcome and ultimately impact uh, uh, measurement data. I think, I think there's a spectrum of difficulty around this. I mean, outputs are relatively easy to measure. Outcomes are a little more difficult. Impact, way more difficult. And I don't think we see uh, enough effort and resources being put into um, analysis of, of impact because you're right, it's qualitative data. Um, there's issues around causal relationships and whether it's correlation, but it's much more difficult. And I think it's really important that we find ways to start to do this, but it's not going to be cheap. Mm. Yeah, and John, I mean that just sort of coming back on that, and I think this this is you, you hit the nail on the head because this whole space is ripe for disruption. Um, because you know, if if you talk to a sort of social development practitioner, they will say the only way to to evidence impact is to to you know deploy a um, you know a cadre of of uh, emunerators who with clipboards go around and they do um, pre 
um, pre, uh, you know, baseline surveys, midterm evaluations, end-term evaluations, and and have that sort of ability to track data over time at scale across thousands of households. And you need, you know, statistically valued sample size, and that's only that's the only way to do it. And then you'll have academics who'll come in and say, yeah, well, that's great, but that's not gold standard because gold standard is a randomized control trial where we've got to have basically a, a group where they are receiving the, the 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 service, the intervention, and a group that actually are, are statistically the same who aren't receiving it. And that's the only way you're going to be able to prove whether your intervention is actually making a difference versus the overall market background. Um, and I think the problem with, with, with those types of interventions are they are hugely costly, uh, hugely time-consuming. Um, and you can imagine in a, in a COVID context uh, over the last couple of years, impossible to do because of, 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 of movement restrictions. And when I say ripe for disruption, I think where, where we are at with our, our work and our clients is, is, is trying to bring um, uh, uh, climate, environmental, and social development rigor to the table and then combine that with with technology that allows um, large scaling large scale surveying to happen of grantees or portfolio companies and then underlying beneficiaries so clients customers employees households using technology which is um, statistically uh, robust and is sufficiently uh, considered as 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 enough to to provide that evidence base to prove um, causality and to prove impact, and it's somehow a sort of middle way between just generating lots of output level data, which is meaningless, and having this sort of academically r- rigorous gold standard, which costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to do properly. Um, and that's what we're trying to do is right size a solution that is, is cost effective and is time effective for, for the market. And, you know, a good example of that is we just carried out uh, about three months ago, a survey of a microfinance institution in East Africa, where we surveyed um, 1,200 clients in 10 business days via WhatsApp. And we're able to basically demonstrate um, uh, causality between the, 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 the lending activities of the microfinance institution and improve, improved well-being at the household level of the customers of that, that microfinance institution as a result of, of, of financing. You use the word causality, but that was most likely correlation. Um, uh, if you're following the uh... Uh, what you said about the social scientists and their approach around random trials, etc. Yes, um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, just shows how, how difficult this whole area is uh, going to uh, be. There's, I think there's another aspect to this is, is um, uh, you're right about the cost. Uh, there was a charity that I saw a few years ago that wanted to show their impact and they, they spent 50,000 pounds just to show their impact. Two problems with that. One, the costs. The second problem is that they didn't use it internally to improve. And thirdly, they didn't use it externally to demonstrate uh, their value. And I think that we have to look at data management and business intelligence and evaluation uh, from both an internal perspective. How can we improve the product that we have uh, so we avoid greenwashing, et cetera. And externally, how do we demonstrate that the products actually have some uh, outcomes and potential impact? Mm. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it's given, this is a very interesting space and it's, it's, it's ever-changing and, and you've both kind of touched on the technological developments. It, it almost seems exponential where this could go. 
I, I wonder, Justin, where do you think it's going to kind of land in the next five to ten years? Yeah, I, I think all of this, th- these issues speak to to the points around you know concerns around around greenwashing or impact washing or SDG washing, you know, basically uh, claims that are being made of various stripes to funders that are then uh, unsubstantiated or, or, or even if, you know, the intent was there that actually from a technical perspective, and this speaks to the measurement piece, that the, the, the implementing partner, whether it be a charity, uh, a social enterprise or a fund manager or a company does not have the tools and the capability to gather sufficient data to back up their claims. And then, you know, this is what we call impact risk. And that um, is is a gap between what you've claimed to the market and actually what you can then prove. And this impact risk is is basically material now, particularly for somebody who uh, puts their head above the parapet with these the, these claims, um, and that is 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 leading to you know significant reputational risk where you know people will not put money into that entity again. They'll tell everybody they know not to put money into that entity, and in some cases, particularly in the the impact world, that is leading to the risk of litigation and the risk risk of as 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 sustainable uh, finance legislation comes in that list that is it also risks um, you know legislative um, action in terms of fines for for misselling um, so yeah I think it's super important um, from a from a technology point of view we're, we're definitely seeing that's that's the way um, that that as as the requirement for more rigor in terms of non-financial reporting is becoming more and more uh, pressing, then then entities need to find um, scalable, um, robust yet cost-effective solutions to gather that 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 evidence. And as you say, John, it's it's not you know they're, they're, they're never going to afford that full ability to demonstrate uh, uh, causality, but but to basically be able to to demonstrate sufficient enough evidence that this program is making a difference is where they need to get to. And and yeah, I think technology solutions are are key to that. Um, and what we we've done at Invest is is really over the last couple of years, recognise that that is a, a market gap, um, and we've we've built a an impact measurement uh, technology that that combines with our, our 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 advisory expertise in this space to then offer clients the ability to to kind of measure uh, at scale through a cost of uh, cost uh, effective solution. And we we support that, but we come at it from the perspective of uh, being prepared and to be able to uh, manage the complexity of those conversations because the clients have different levels of sophistication and needs around this. So some are just happy to hear, oh, yeah, there's a possibility this is going to be doing good for climate, et cetera, or dealing with equity issues. Um, and, and others are more sophisticated. And you'll see probably uh, the millennials and Gen Z um, becoming more and more sophisticated in what they're expecting. So advisors have to understand where their clients are coming from and not to overly complex the conversation with them, but also to meet the needs that they're at. So it's it's like a, a Boy Scout model, be prepared. And Justin, you, you touched on it there in terms of, um, in terms of measurements. Um, but we have heard a lot in the last couple of years about greenwashing, and it, I think in many ways it, it really is a real issue. 
um, particularly in you know financial services. Uh, do you think measurement is the key to overcoming greenwashing? Um, I think it's part of the the armory. Um, I, th- I think um, you know measurement provides um, evidence, and evidence can be used to then demonstrate whether claims have have indeed uh, materialized. Um, you know, I think so. I, I think it's a key uh, practical tool for a manager. But um, you know, I think I think greenwashing starts well before that, and I think there needs you know greenwashing you know starts right at the point of of you know designing a a an intervention, and that that intervention needs to be designed with with sufficient humility, um, a a a a not a market-driven based approach, um, and one that is 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 fact-based, so that you know overclaiming and overstating is not something that happens from the get-go. Um, because if that is uh if that is the way things go, you're you're always going to be basically uh you know uh, fighting an uphill battle to basically prove what you've stated or overclaimed because it's impossible to actually achieve that. Um, so a lot of our work in the impact strategy side of things is to to work with managers to on one hand um, encourage them to be brave and to be bold and to really commit to put capital to work to make uh, a, a a fundamental difference, uh, uh, you know, in in uh, in in addressing some of these large uh, global challenges. So there's no point in in them not you know being brave and being bold, but to do so on the basis of 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 a, a well researched, uh, academically rigorous. Um, investment impact investment thesis that that can stand up for scrutiny and and is fact based when it goes to market and then you know what we also encourage um, fund managers to do is 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 to basically not just embed their their impact strategy and targets and metrics and KPIs into their their fund marketing documentation but to actually be be bold again and be transparent and embed it into their fund. Uh, issuance documentation as well. So in effect, you know, and it, when an investor comes in, an LP comes in and, and signs, uh, you know, uh, signs uh, the, the, you know, sees the investment memorandum and and signs uh, LPAs, that actually they are seeing that impact commitment embedded legally into those fund documents. So again, it just keeps the fund manager's feet to the fire at a very early stage and then motivates and incentivizes those managers to, to actually then actualize that impact over the lifespan of, of, of the fund. Um, I think another couple of things really important would be around um, that again, just mitigates greenwashing is around, you know, uh, moving beyond that, that marketing phase and taking that impact strategy and embedding it into your, um, your investment processes. Um, so, you know, using your impact uh, strategy to create an impact um, due diligence system. So when you have a pipeline of, of portfolio companies that you're, you know, you're looking at, that not only are you screening them for commercial um, and financial considerations, but you're providing equal weighting um, on, um, on, on impact uh, considerations and ultimately a decision by the investment committee or a decision by the board ultimately to invest in a deal 
is a weighted decision um, that is weighted on a combination of uh, financial and impact considerations. Because if somehow the deal is only concluded because of purely commercial considerations, then that impact risk issue is, is then, then, then starts to materialize again. And then finally, I think another thing, just to consider how you keep the manager's feet to the fire and keep them honest, is around um, how do you embed uh, impact into their own financial incentives. So uh, annual remuneration, for example, should um, annual remuneration have an impact element to it that you've got to achieve certain impact targets uh, as well as financial targets to achieve your full compensation for that year. And likewise, you know, in a, in a standard private equity fund where you've got um, the carried interest, which is really where the managers make their money, where they they, they basically take a, a 20% uh, fee of any uh, profit uh, made above the benchmark return to investors. And then the managers historically have always been incentivized to, to hit that carry because of the profit they get from it. Um, what we're seeing in the market and what we've been actively involved in with a number of our fund management clients is designing this concept of impact carry, where a certain percentage of that carried interest, it could be 50%, it could be 70%, it could be 25%, is linked not to financial considerations, but it's linked to the achievement of impact targets. And again, it just really focuses attention of the entire fund management team on hitting those impact objectives. So all of these things... Um, across the life cycle of the fund, marketing, fund issuance, impact due diligence, uh, impact incentives, impact measurement and management, all of these are designed to minimize the risk of greenwashing. Uh, and that's what we fully encourage in every manager that's coming to market wanting to launch a branded impact or sustainability fund. Can I add two things to the conversation? Because what's being said is correct. Um, but uh, there's two things that I think are really important around what Justin is saying. One is, if you're going to achieve that, you have to learn how to talk to your clients about this stuff. And many professional advisors really have a problem doing that, whether they see it as necessary or whether they're shy about it or whatever, and whether they feel they have the skills. The second is that uh, Justin was talking about the importance of impact targets uh, for advisors. So I think there's two aspects. There's the organizational aspect and there's the individual aspect. And, and again, I go back to the use of language. Um, impact targets, how are you gonna measure impact targets as, a, as an advisor as part of the compensation system? Well, you might be able to measure outcomes, but really difficult to measure the impact targets. So I think we have to be really careful about the language that we use because there's so much confusion out there and I don't think we should be adding to that confusion. Mm. Well, I wanted to pick up on that first point, actually, because you, you mentioned there about how to broach that conversation between the advisor or the manager and the client. How would you, or, or more broadly perhaps, how does philanthropy impact advise uh, wealth management advisors and their firms to prepare for conversations with clients about mm. their values and their motivations? Well, we come at it from a number of different perspectives. Um, I mean, the training programs that we have are are really essential to these things. So one about supporting clients in their donor journey. And I mentioned data earlier about clients wanting that. And the other is about having suitability discussions around their values and motivations, et cetera. I sound like a broken record when I say that, but it is true that it's really important to keep emphasizing that. Um, and um, so we look at it from a number of perspectives. So when we work with uh, uh, firms, 
uh, we talk about it in terms of uh, uh, organizational policy. So as, um, as Justin has mentioned, um, a KPI should be built in uh, around uh, these having these conversations and supporting clients on different aspects of it. Um, and so the organization is really important. The management has to buy into it. Uh, there's always been the uh, individual um, uh, wealth managers, et cetera, who do this. But if the organization is not bought into it, um, then I think there's some real issues. So we spend a lot of time talking to companies about how they can start to build this into day-to-day -day kinds of activities, and which is really important, and KPIs are one part of that. Um, in some organizations, uh, what they do is they select champions. Uh, so if you have you know, a few hundred or more advisors, then one way is to train everyone, but the other is to select champions who can reinforce what's happening and support their colleagues around this whole thing. Um, so there's different approaches. The second uh, way of doing it is around uh, the training. And the training, we make sure that people understand uh, the compliance issues, because that's really important. We make sure they understand what clients are wanting and the changes that are taking place with different generations. Um, and so uh, FCA consumer duty, MIFID two are really important, the whole thing around next gen, et cetera. Um, and um, uh, so picking up on, on the market uh, trends and the uh, uh, training, uh, as I said, is really uh, key to this. Um, and uh, so prepare. Uh, learn, put into practice, have policies in place, um, and um, uh, really start to understand that uh, language is really important. And um, uh, so a lot of the miscommunication uh, uh, can be dealt with if people start to use common language and, or understand if someone's using different words uh, but in different ways and stuff, uh, how to pick up on that and stuff. So communication. Mm. And finally, Justin, just to circle back to the to the opener to the to the conversation today, and in many respects, I suppose the crux of what we've been discussing throughout this this podcast. Do you think that these big issues will continue to be of importance, or do you think they will become less pressing in the face of current inflationary rates and and, and obviously the cost of living crisis? Are these headwinds going to slow these these processes down, or? Where do you see the things going in the, in the short term? Yeah, um, I, I think things are are here to stay. Um, I think you know, just just um, reflecting on some of the comments from this week's Sustainable Finance Week in Guernsey, um, you know, the 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 AUM that is now flowing into sustainable and impact investments is is larger than it's ever been. Um, and I think sort of global headwinds, uh, uncertainty in the market uh, doesn't seem to be having so far a significant, significant dampening effect on that. And I think that's largely driven by um, I, I just think a, a, a broad global um, movement um, towards a recognition of the climate crisis and the need to um, 
you know, uh, massively increase um, financial flows to address what is potentially an existential issue for all of us. And then I think broader issues around social justice uh, that have come out of COVID uh, and, and, and come out of, of, of recognition of, of fundamental um, inequality in the world. And I think that's, that's translating into uh, fund managers recognizing that, that uh, their clients um, want to to have a positive impact through their investments, and obviously uh, the the John's uh, work with uh, and, and and survey work with Gen Z is also proving that out in terms of of families of of significant wealth. So I think this this is set to set to stay, um, and I I don't see any even with the the challenging global context. Um, I, I think this this journey is is moving at pace um, and therefore is 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 one that um, continues to to need long term um, support and attention from um, from professional advisors and and um, industry specialists such as ourselves. I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, uh, it's going to be more and more shift from transactional approaches to advice to actually relationship, especially as technology gets so good that uh, transactions will just be in seconds and it'll be high quality. And so relationships are going to be important if you want to keep your clients. I think there's room to grow. I mean, there's just a, a, some stats that we came across around philanthropy and the uh, uh, from uh, uh, HMRC self-assessment data um, the top 1% of earners uh, average uh, income of 271,000 um, pounds. Uh, their average monthly donation is 48 pounds. Uh, so there's a hell of a lot of room to grow in terms of, of from a philanthropy perspective from wealthy people. Uh, from a, an advisor perspective of picking up on this, as I mentioned earlier, there's organizational issues that have to be addressed, um, uh, improvement. And I think that the culture and behavior of the advisory marketplace is shifting and slowly getting getting there, but there's still a ways to go. And there's uh, uh, work that Justin's doing, the work that we're doing, uh, complement each other and, and reinforce a, a lot of that. Um, and financial return is still important, especially in these difficult times, but at the same time, social issues around gender equity, environment, uh, racial equity and stuff are really uh, uh, top of the agenda as well. But good luck in measuring impact. Well, thank you both for your time today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Justin. Thank well, you very much. Thank you for having us. I particularly enjoyed hearing your thoughts about uh, what is driving professional advisors to get involved in and have those conversations with the clients about their values, and notably about how they can solve some of the global issues of our time in many respects. Um, I was also fascinated to learn more about the, the methods and ways of measuring uh, there from Justin and how vital measurement is to properly achieving um, impact. Uh, thanks also to you for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, we have a backlog of interviews and panel discussions on the We Are Guernsey podcast channel. You can check them out by searching for We Are Guernsey on your preferred podcast platform. To find out more about Guernsey and its specialist financial services sector, head over to our website at weareguernsey.com. We also have links to John and Justin's respective social media in our show notes, um, along with their firms, Philanthropy Impact and Invest Advisory. Check these out to hear more from them. Until then, it's goodbye from Guernsey.